Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. In March of next year, mental illness may qualify for medical assistance in dying, made, M-A-I-D. And increasingly Canadians are engaging or considering engaging in made. I've heard people say to me that that's what they're thinking of doing when they're, when they're ill, particularly after we've aired programs. And we want to talk about the facts and talk about the fallacies as far as medical assistance is in dying is concerned. Dr. Stephanie Green is co-founder and president of the Canadian Association of Maid Assessors and Providers. She's the medical advisor to the BC Ministry of Health on the Maid Oversight Committee, moderator for the Canadian Association of Maid Assessors and Providers National Online Forum. She's a member of the clinical faculty of UBC, University of British Columbia, and the University of Victoria, and she's the author of This Is Assisted Dying. Dr. Green, thanks for coming back on the program. Thanks for having me, Roy. So I, I uh, emailed you. I f- first broadcast about the issue of medical assistance in dying during Sue Rodriguez's battle for the right to medical assistance in dying in the 90s. And, and her petition went to the Supreme Court of Canada, and the vote was 5 to 4 against. Had it gone the other way, 5 to 4, medical assistance in dying would have been enshrined in this country. Years and years ago, her lawyer, Ms. Rodriguez's lawyer, Chris Considine, uh, uh, Victoria, has been on this program over the years. Um, and I've also interviewed patients who similarly petitioned. There's a reason for my telling you this. I, I've interviewed patients who petitioned for the right to a medically assisted death. We spoke to a British Columbia logger uh, some years ago, and, and he was doing everything he could to get a physician-assisted death. And his member of parliament was vehemently opposed, and they were on together, on the program together. And they had a really um, positive conversation, but the MP's mind wasn't changed. Would you be able to share with us, please, what MAID is, and how is it, and when is it carried out? Sure. So medical assistance in dying is uh, it's an end-of-life, a compassionate end-of-life care available with the help of a clinician who either prescribes or administers a lethal medication that will end someone's life in a very specific safeguarded circumstance, which includes the explicit request of a competent adult. That's like the formal definition. Essentially, when someone meets the criteria legally and medically, um, then, then it's available to them. Whether they avail themselves of it or not, that is up to the patient. It is a patient-centered, patient-driven care that is basically an exception uh, within the criminal code of this country. So what fundamental parameters must be met 
in order to be yeah. – uh, to, uh, to, I don't want to use the word qualified. That's just a terrible word. To be permitted to go forward with medical assistance in death and dying. Yeah. So, so I, I love to explain exactly what that is. I think some people are maybe under the misunderstanding that it's fairly simple. You just call up and ask for this. And that is simply not the case. It's a very rigorous system. In order to have an assisted death in this country, a patient themselves and nobody else needs to ask for it. They need to ask for it in writing. It needs to be witnessed and signed and dated. So there has to be a formal written request. And then several things need to be true. And you need to be seen by two independent clinicians, and both of them need to verify that these conditions are true. And essentially, you need to be over 18 years of age. You need to be eligible for what we call government-funded health care. So you need to be eligible for Canadian health care. Um, you need to make uh, what's called a voluntary request. So there can be no sign or sense or element of coercion in any way. It can't be because you're, you know, your greedy child wants to have the house or your angry spouse wants you out of the way. It has to be a voluntary request by the patients themselves with no sense of coercion towards this by anyone in any way. Patient needs to be capable of making this request, specifically that they understand what, what's wrong with them, what they're asking for, their treatment options, including palliative care, appreciate the results of this request if they have an assisted death that they will die and that's irrevocable, and what their life would look like if they don't die. They need to articulate their request, um, like really have a good understanding of what they're uh, requesting. That's, that's all about capacity and giving informed consent to make this request. And the, the issues that people talk about in the news a lot today, on top of all of those things, a patient must have what our law calls a grievous and irremediable condition, just big words for serious illness that's incurable. But it's defined as three elements. So in order to say you have a grievous and irremediable condition, you must have a, a serious and incurable illness, disease, or disability. B, you must already be in an advanced state of decline. And C, you must be enduring a suffering that you yourself believe is intolerable and can't be um, uh, reduced by any means that you find accept acceptable. So all of those things need to be true in order to be eligible for an assisted death. Are there common denominators that you've encountered with patients who have applied for and, in fact, then carried through with medical assistance in dying? Interesting question. I I would say that every case is quite unique. Uh, every person's situation is unique and must be uh, assessed as such. But there are some common features. I mean, you know, we've seen that uh, a lot of the people who have stepped forward for this care uh, tend to be very much wanting control of their lives. They've often been people who've had some sense of control and success in doing that in their lives. I mean, demographically, they tended to be a little bit older a little bit wider, a little bit more socioeconomically advanced, a little higher educated. We see that in the population stepping forward. But really what's driving them is a sense of um, agency. They want to be able to make their own decision about when, when that time is right for them. They don't want the illness to decide um, when they'll take their life. They want themselves to be able to say the date, the time, the place, and the people that will be with them. That sense of control is important. Yeah, I, I've talked to people, had conversations, and I, particularly after you and I agreed to speak on the program, I've talked to a number of people, and 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 almost everybody said to me, if I get, uh, and I've said it, if I get the verdict that I have a terminal illness, I'm going to say, how much time do I have to enjoy my life? Yeah. 
<laughs> and then um, I'm going, again, personal decision. Then this is what you say going in, right? Who knows what you'll actually do? Right. But, exactly. But yeah, I want to make the decision. And if, I, if I, this is what I want, this is what I'm going to ask for. And almost unanimously, everyone I talked to said the same thing. I will want, I will ask for medical assistance in dying again, whether they do it or not. Uh, it's another question, but it shows a real interest, doesn't it? It does. And one of the really interesting things I didn't expect to find is that when I'm, when someone's gone through this very rigorous program, when, when, you know, two clinicians have done this and I get to sit in front of someone and say, Mr. Smith, you're actually eligible for this care. Like there's no more hoops you have to run through. Everything has been clarified. You've made yourself very clear. You're eligible for this care. It is amazing to me to watch the transformation in the patient just to be told that, just to know that they have that possibility, that they're empowered to make that decision. It's therapeutic in and of itself. I see their suffering go down at that very moment. Some people just knowing that they have that option in their back pocket reduces their suffering enough that they have kind of a will to live longer. They know that they can make that phone call to me at any time. And so it gives them that impetus to, to really focus on how they want to live, you know, as opposed to how, as opposed to being fearful of how they're going to die. They change their focus from, from dying and fear of dying to living and how they want to live. It's quite remarkable. Dr. Green, uh, in March of next year, mental illness, I hope I've got this correct, may qualify for medical assistance in dying. Controversial? What's the status? What's the situation? Yeah, so I think just to clarify, um, when our original Supreme Court decision came down, the Carter decision in 2015, there was nobody with a particular diagnosis that was excluded from access to MAID. So someone with a mental health disorder wasn't excluded. And when our first law came in 2016, we commonly call it Bill C-14, when the first law got legislated to regulate this care, there was also no particular patient group that was excluded from access just because of their diagnosis. So it wasn't because you had a mental health disorder that you couldn't access MAID. You, you could try. It's just that you had to meet all of the eligibility criteria, and it was extremely difficult to do so. In 2019, a different decision happened, and in 2021 became into our law where some of the eligibility criteria were changed, and it seemed to open the door for people whose mental health disorder was their sole and only underlying illness, whereas before they had trouble qualifying, all of a sudden there was a pathway to made for them. So the government specifically excluded for the first time in 2021 those whose mental health disorder was their only underlying diagnosis. And in March of 23, what's happening is that exclusion, that specific exclusion will be lifted out of our law and those whose mental health disorder is their only underlying condition will now have access to MAID once again. How do you feel about that? Well, I think it's a, it's a complex topic. I don't pass judgment on the law. I'm not a lawyer. I, I don't set law. I think my job and those of my colleagues, our job is to do our very best to provide the highest of medical standards under whatever the law currently is. We do that now. We'll do that in March. Will it be challenging? Absolutely it will. It was challenging in 2016 when it was new. It was challenging in 2021 when certain things changed. It will be challenging again in 2023. Uh, we'll have to learn. We'll have to see how it goes. Uh, it will be challenging. I've talked to doctors about this, and uh, some doctors have said to me, I can never do that. Um, and and they, they, they know. I mean, they say nobody's forcing anyone to do it. Just I couldn't do that. 
Right. What I'm assuming that you've assisted someone to die. Should I've I? assisted a great many people. Okay. Yes. Um, what caused you to become engaged in 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 this endeavor? And I, I should let me just be a little personal for a moment. Sure. My wife died um, seven years ago of a very aggressive cancer. And it was a it was a terrible fourteen months. Thank you. It was a very ter- it was a terrible fourteen months. And we talked on a number of occasions about um, medical assistance in dying. And she was a mm. healthcare professional herself. Ultimately, decided that that's not what she wanted to do. But she did very seriously consider it. So, what what caused you to decide to to become engaged? You know, it's not a straight line. It's not because there was a personal event in my family. And there's lots of ways I could answer your question. But I think the core of it is two things. Number one, as a, I'm trained as a family physician. And one of the pillars of our care, I think, is to, is to really try to respect what we call patient-centered care. It's like a principle of, of, of how we practice. So understanding and respecting that the patient knows themselves best and that what they, you know, how they analyze their situation in their own in their own community, in their own family, in their own selves is what's important. And respecting that autonomy is very important. I'd like to think that my first 22 years of work in maternity care where I delivered babies, that I was able to espouse that and practice that way. But I think the core essence of what you're asking me is how can I as a physician do this work? And I, I really... No, I, I'm, that, not, I'm not being judgmental. I hope you know that. No, no, no. I totally understand. I, I actually think it's a question that a lot of clinicians ask themselves. And I I think when I go back and think about why I went to medical school, when I think about my colleagues in various fields of healthcare, why are they in this field? Why are they doing this instead of some other job? I really, really believe that people go into healthcare because they want to help people. I think that no matter what we say at our you know, med school interviews, the truth is we go to try to help people. And a lot of what we do is aimed towards that, but not always successful. There's this, there's this um, expression in medicine, which I really like, which is that we cure sometimes. We care often, but we comfort always. And the essence of what a clinician does is we help the people that come to us and ask for our help. We, that's our job. And, and I, as a family physician, I help throughout the entire life stage. So from birth, adolescence, young adulthood, parenting, midlife crisis, old age, decline, and death. These are all stages of life. Mm-hmm. And I'd like to be able to think I can help my patients through all of those stages and in a way that really honors the patient-centered care that's important, what's important to them. And so when they come asking me for this care, I feel like it's my job, it's my role to, to step in and to provide this care. Yeah. International polling shows a significant majority of people agree that doctors should be permitted to assist in dying painlessly when such a death is requested by a patient and carefully considered by medical professionals. So there is the weight of public opinion is on your side. I've often said, and it's not, I, I don't want to talk about what I think, but I really want to throw this in because we've had these discussions on the air and I've always made the point that in appropriate circumstance, and the only person who decides that to me is the patient. I, um, I agree. Right. So, so, then, so then medical assistance in dying under that circumstance is the final act of compassionate health care. Exactly. Exactly. It's, uh, it's exactly it. And, 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 and to be honest, as a, as a clinician, to be invited into that space with someone, that very intimate space, and to help them facilitate that final wish is very, very privileged work, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Very, very meaningful work. Um, this is a tough question. I left it to the last one. We have about a minute. Uh, yeah. People always ask about, well, 
how young are some patients who ask for mm-hmm. for aid? How how young? Well, they have to be eighteen or older. So I got to be eighteen. Yeah, you said that of right. In Ontario, that that it goes as low as eighteen. So I, I think that we do see a very small amount of people in very young ages accessing this. They're they're not common, but we have seen some for sure. The oldest I'm told is one hundred and fourteen. Well, the average age, though, is about 75, 76. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. 